Welcome to part two of our podcast exploring the fundamentals of leadership with Professor Carl Hennigan. Professor Kamal Matani continues his questions to Carl, and in this discussion, we explore where your motivation as a leader comes from, succession planning, seeking mentoring, how leaders can engage with the media and the wider world, plus strategies for managing your work-life balance. We hope you enjoy. And it sounds like, Carl, you're, you're, you, you haven't lost that hunger for new knowledge. You know, you were just talking about learning from students. You were talking about learning from other statisticians. You, that, I take it that hasn't left you. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I think that's an important aspect of the teaching, you see. The number one thing about teaching and writing and communicating is I'm often trying to say, do I really understand this and the issues? And in doing that, can I communicate them? And if I do, I think, yeah, I understand it. But there's so many things where we touch the surface of knowledge that there's a tendency for us to want to say, I have all the knowledge and therefore... I have all the expertise and I should supply all the opinions. As opposed to that's what's great about evidence-based medicine is you're trying to say when I have a question in trying to answer that question, what does the available scientific evidence say? How does that reduce my uncertainties? And in doing that, how can I communicate that forward? There's a sense that we should be seen to be all knowing and all knowledgeable. Mm. And that to me seems a, an untenable position that breaks down really quickly. You'll just get caught out. Whereas when you're trying to say, faced with this question, what type of evidence would you use to answer it? How do you use that to inform the decision-making? I think is incredibly interesting. And I have to say is, is as I've gone along, is like the knowledge requirements have got greater. And you just can't quite believe in any area you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much interesting information here that can help us make a better decision. That actually, yeah, I am really hungry. And I think that's one of my drivers is I, I'm really passionate about uh, filling them knowledge gaps. Now, in understanding myself, and this, this is, um, is one of the things is, sometimes I can be a bit of a procrastinator. And, and that's because I understand how I work, because once I start to work on something, I won't let it go. And I'll be all over it. And I'm like, we're in there. And it can be exhausting, time consuming. And I work sometimes in the evenings and weekends and into the night, because I'm like, I'm so enjoying this. And I'm, I'm all over it. So sometimes I recognize that in myself, but also in the team around me. Because I'm like, once we start, we're going to make this happen. We're not going to take our foot off the gas until it goes. Therefore, sometimes I'm delaying things until I feel ready. Or there's a gap in the teams that somebody's got some resources to help me. But what we're not going to do is, once we start, we are not going to stop until we've completed that task at hand. And this is the other bit of the tortoise, which I think is really interesting. That's where you really have to ask yourself, if we do this project, what difference will it make? What will it lead to? What knowledge will I have gained? Or will we have built something that's world-class? And if you can't understand that, don't start. Because if you don't have the end game in mind, how will you know when you get there? Because there's always going to be bits on the road where you're going to run out of resources, or you're going to feel tired, or you're going to want to give up. 
But you shouldn't do that at that point. You should be then going, look, I remember why we started. This is a point now to double down and move forward my effort. And I think that idea of understanding before you start where's the end game in it is really important. So, for instance, when we're developing a new MSC, I say to people, they go, right, within a year it's got to be. No, no, I go, look, we've got three years to make it viable, five years for it to be a world-class product. That's the end game in mind. In five years, we are going to be the world leaders in evidence synthesis, the go-to place if you want training in this. That's where we're going. But you then take it slowly and move along that mission. And as the road gets a bit bumpy, you go, it's all right. We're still on, on track. I just want to pick up a little bit about something you said, Carl, about um, you know your leadership style in particular. You mentioned earlier about sort of building capacity and you alluded to the value of teaching, training. Um, two things I wanted to pick you up on, if I may, is, is one about mentoring and how you see that, because you, you talked about people that you've learned from. And then the second thing is, as a leader in evidence-based healthcare, as, as a director of a group and so on, when do you start thinking about succession planning as well? And when do you think, when do you start thinking about the next generation of leaders to, to sort of come through? Yeah, so that's good. Now let's take the mentoring one and then we'll mm. come to the succession. So I think what it is with mentoring, it's quite interesting, is DPhil supervision is quite an interesting concept. And, and, and it's a really good example of where I think you can develop good leadership and good mentorship. And what you're generally doing through a DPhil is at the beginning, I put lots more energy and effort. I say I'll meet with you every two weeks, but if you've got a problem in between, come and talk to me. We'll talk it through. But what I'm looking for is, is a journey where the person starts to become more empowered. So they start to take more of the decisions, more of the responsibility. And so by year two and into year three, they're emailing me going, hey, Carl, I'm everything's all right. I don't need to meet this month. Just letting you know where we're up to. I'm on track. Everything's fine. And, and you're going, we're succeeding. Mm. I've succeeded. The person is taking decisions they know how to use me inappropriately as a resource. And I'm going, that's what you're trying to do. How do we use each other as a resource? So I think what you do in mentoring is you can have a big impact early on, but you've got to re realize it's a diminishing returns, isn't it? And then the best way you mentor as you go through is by the way we behave and the way we make people feel and our emotional intelligence. And knowing sometimes when Actually, there might only be one or two times with the senior people where you go, I can help this person out now. Here's the point where I can give them a bit of my thought processes. I might go about this this way. But in doing that, I'm recognizing that's how I go around it. And one of the things is I've said is, one of the things is watch out for the bit of advice which you get is, I wouldn't do that if I was you. When people are saying that, they're saying, not you shouldn't do it, they're saying, I wouldn't do it. Because we all have different slight ways of doing something. So recognizing at some point, the mentoring plan comes into a point where you go, this person is gonna make their own decisions. All I can do is give them a bit of advice about how I would go about it, not how they would go about it. And if they don't take it, completely fine. But I'm just saying, here we go, here's how you think about that. And I think we all find that because on our journey, we, as we go up, what's interesting is 
the politics gets greater, the people who are up there are obviously all smart people, have their own agendas and what they want to achieve. And often in that, you've got to become more situational awareness, more thoughtful. Oh, I've never been in this position. This is quite a delicate issue now. How do I strategically go about that? And, I, and I'd say that actually, when you go up the ladder, actually, about, and this is just a generalization, but about 5% of what I do requires that higher level thinking in a way that you're being strategic. And that's also, again, another point where you're talking to people. I talk to people in them 5% of my work. I go, could I just run this by you? And the people who don't move up the ladder tend to react and make decisions without running it by somebody or thinking it through. And, and I think that's where the mentorship comes in. I'm seeking mentorship from people all the time. They don't even know I'm doing it. Can I just run this by you? At that point, somebody has been your mentor. I'm asking them to say, what do you think? What would you do in this situation? And if they agree with me, it reassures me. If they don't, I go, all right, I'll rethink it. So I think that's the mentorship. And I see that as like, it's the same journey. And if you look at it in something like sports, you know, if you, you know, you do sports, you can have some coaching early on. You can make big gains with really simple bits of instruction. But as you get better and better at something, the, the advice, the training, the coaching input is very, very refined very little bits and often you've got to make sure you don't make things worse for people at the high quality end of what they're doing so i think that's the mentorship within that you see is a role where in effect succession planning is making sure people are empowered to take decisions and that actually you could get to a point where you think if i stepped away from this organization and was away on sabbatical for six months would it survive and that, and I feel confident in the organization we've got, that is the case. Would it be done differently? Certainly would, some bits would be done differently. That's okay because everybody has to bring their own way of doing things. But also what I think the best organizations do is you can see people coming through. And then what I think of it, it's a bit like a Venn diagram, the way we work. That the Venn diagram might have more than three bits. It might have five, it might have seven circles. And some of them circles overlap with each other that are not involving me, but there are some bits where we might find something where we're all together in this. Now that's where the teaching works really well because everybody has a common goal where they go, we're trying to get this student through this MSC or we're trying to get this DFO through. So that's where the teaching works really well in a way that the research doesn't quite do that. So, and I think allowing that overlapping effect means that sometimes somebody might pull off and go, I'm out of here, and that's completely fine. But if you just let it, let it fly like that, what will happen is at some point, they just come back and go, we've got this particular project where I need your particular skills and input. And at that point you go, great, I'm available. But what's happening is it's growing all the time because you, you've got not one person vertical in control, you've got a very flat organization where actually what you're doing is trying to allow everybody to say, look, let's be flat in our decision-making. Let's try and get on with taking forward initiatives. And some people run faster than others. That's okay. In that Let's accept it, yeah. yeah. I, I've got a couple more questions, but I didn't want to, uh, us not to discuss the sort of some of the current global events, because, you know, obviously you are uh, 
playing a fairly prominent role in that and, and with your expertise and your experience. And, yeah. uh, and I'm just interested in your perspectives on how leadership is presented at the moment, because we're in a very interesting healthcare situation, to say the least, with different perspectives being put forward in different ways. What are your thoughts on the current leadership at the moment? Well, I think the first thing is to say we're in a different era with social media and the 24-hour news cycle in that there's an insatiable appetite for people to get information out there, but also for everybody to comment on it. Mm. And that can be very polarizing in terms of what happens and can feel very uncomfortable because if you put your views out there and your thoughts out there, then you make yourself vulnerable. And I think it's a bit like politics. If people like what you say, they'll reaffirm it. And if they don't like, they'll reel against it. But I think what we did in this current pandemic was, was quite a divergence from what we'd normally do. Is one of the key areas we decided to do was to say, we're gonna work with the media to try and understand and explain what's happening. And that largely started with the death statistics because we was one of the few people who published on Office for National Death Statistics and have been interested in all-cause mortality, excess deaths for some time. And I wrote a piece right back in February in the BMJ about it saying, this is an important metric. This is the sort of information we'll be watching. And what's happened is a huge number of journalists came on board and said, we don't really understand this material. So we started out with a weekly uh, webinar based on the ONS Office for National Statistics death data just explaining what it is, what it means. And that you was taking all Tuesday morning and then presenting for half an hour and then doing a question and answer. In doing that also, part of our group in the evidence service said we need to fill some of the evidence gaps. And there's been a huge amount of input from people to put together rapid reviews and then we publish it on the CBM site. It's had over 20 million views, which has been you know, impressive for a site that is basically not a news out, it's not a, not a journal, it's just a CBM website. So the evidence service has filled that gap. And what that's done then is led to more interesting appetite for looking at the data, analyzing the data, spotting the trends, but also where problems have existed. One of the big issues we found was, for instance, nobody can ever die from COVID because it is once you've got a positive test, Public Health England, we're going to count that in your death stats, even if it's nine months later. Well, you could imagine what that data might look like today if that was still being done. We would have panic here because some days it could be 300 deaths reported, of which only 60 occurred in the last 28 days. So I think in doing that, but one of the big things we've done, which has created a lot of tension, is reflect the uncertainty in the evidence base poor decision-making. And what we I've found is there's been too much certainty applied by people who haven't fought through some of these issues over the longer course. And these are, these are fellow healthcare leaders you're talking about. Yeah, and, and reflecting on that. And so my, my points are the first thing that you need to do when you're looking at the data and the evidence is actually understand what is happening. And that is incredibly difficult to do with the current production of data and evidence. Once you've got that, think about if you're gonna intervene, how will you know if it makes a difference? If you're gonna intervene and continue to intervene, 
you've got problems because then suddenly you lose the trust of the people if you're producing numbers or predictions and they're shown to be false. And this is an incredibly difficult thing to do because even I find myself here, what happens all the time in the media, they want to know, so Professor Hennigan, what's going to happen next? Or what's going to be the outcome of a circuit breaker? And I have to say, I don't know. I have no idea. I can tell you, I think in the next two to three weeks, cases look like they're stabilized. If you put a circuit breaker in, I have no idea if they'll go up, they'll come down more. But if we don't actually evaluate it in a sort of evidence-based way, we're just left in this position where you go, I don't know. And I find that astounding nine months in, we're still uncertain about many interventions and we've not reduced those uncertainties. And if you think about that, the problem is now, is, is there's something within our psyche that wants to create certainty. And in creating certainty, it will manage our own anxieties and our own fears. And there's something about that's the way we're constructed as people to go about our daily business. Otherwise, we might get paralyzed. I'm not going to cross the road because I'm, I'm a bit concerned I might not make it to the other side. But we make these judgments in, in facing risk all the time to go about our daily lives. What's happened in this pandemic is the fear factor has got so great now that actually people can't see the wood from the trees in their decision making because they don't understand the risks to themselves and the people around them. And therefore you become fearful. And if you're making decisions in, in a state of fear, we have a problem in terms of having intelligent, thoughtful approaches. And I think these are the positions in the leadership where you go, this is really interesting. And, 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 and my position is there have been quite a few times where I've been personally attacked or there have been lots of vitriol or lots of issues. And you can see that around. And, and yeah, my emotional intelligence within me, I go, whoa, this feels actually, and people want to control the debate. They don't want you to speak out. And in doing that, again, you have to withdraw and just look after yourself. Not react emotionally, but try and be analytical. And one of the things, if you watch what I say and write a lot, I'm actually writing to people, slow down your thinking. Slow down your reactions to the data. Because if you're going to put an intervention in place, you've got to give it time to work to know whether it's made a difference. But at the moment, there's a, a daily diet of COVID figures coming out and a daily diet of reaction. Because people go, it's going up. Therefore, oh, it's going up. It's going to continue to go up. And this type of thinking, this very short-term thinking has become a huge problem for us right now. And it comes back to the tortoise and the hare discussion, doesn't it? In fact, everybody needs to improve the data, improve their ability to analyze the data, and then in doing that, make thoughtful decisions about what happens next. That's the message we're putting out there. If you put that message out there, what I'm saying is in areas of uncertainty, you take a lot of input and you probably go for the middle road until it becomes clearer where to go. But if you go to the extremes, you've got a problem, haven't you? And there will be times when you're operating in uncertainty and you should just try and take the middle path. So what strategies do you adopt then? Because obviously, you know, you, you, you are fairly prominent in the media at the moment. You talked about your writing. What strategies do you take or for yourself when you know that, 
you know, not people aren't going to always agree with necessarily what you say. Some people will, some people don't. And as you alluded to, some people also may um, use um, personal attacks on you. What sort of what sort of inbuilt systems do you then create in yourself to yeah. kind of be able to manage that? Well, I don't think I don't think uh, somebody said you don't fight fire with fire, and I thought actually you fight fire with water, don't you? It's, you know, I never understood that concept. And if in doing that, the first thing is I will never engage with anybody when it comes to a battle about my ideas are better than yours or uh, I, I'm a better person than you. And I, I do find the, the sort of playground approach of, you know, trying to establish I'm more eminent than you is not the approach. And, and, and that's ingrained in us in evidence-based medicine because if it's coming down to my opinion, then actually we're at the lowest level of decision-making. And therefore, why should anybody listen to me about my opinion? It's just as likely to be wrong as anybody else's in the face of no evidence. And so that's first is to understand that we can't argue our points of view as scientists and academics. And I think what happens is a lot of people get their role reversed. So they want to become the politician and the policy person. What I do is when I go to policy, I go, my job is to inform you so you can set the policy. My job is to reduce the uncertainty or express the uncertainty so that you know about what you're going to do next. It's okay because there's no evidence base. We're going to have a rule of whatever because we know there's no evidence, but we've got to be shown to be doing something. Mixing up being the decision maker with the developer of the evidence and communicating that is a problem. Because as soon as you do that, you'll start to infer your own opinions on the research. You'll start to distort the research and the evidence to suit your agenda. Remembering that we start from a position of, this doesn't work. The evidence is there to disprove the null hypothesis. And I have to build up an evidence base that says it's clear now, it disproves the null hypothesis, this works. And that's what we do in a court of law in effect. Somebody puts evidence out that. You're innocent until proven guilty. That's a null hypothesis. And therefore, you build up an evidence base to say this person's guilty. You build up an evidence base to say it's clear what we should do. And I've always felt that's an important component because when the evidence is clear, you don't need guidance. You don't need my opinions. I've explained it to you. And often what happens then, it's clear what should be done. I tend to therefore avoid the discussion, so for instance, today I've had three or four media requests about what do you think about the effects of circuit breakers? And, and there's a classic example of how would I know about the effects of something that's never been tried, never been evaluated, and something we're about to do and we're unlikely to evaluate. So what has to happen in this situation is you have to say, let the policy ride. And in three weeks, the question I've just put out to my stats team is, how do we best analyze this intervention? What measures would we use to say this is working? Given that some of them won't be appropriate, like death is too late, that's too far down the road. Some of the measures like cases, that might not be appropriate. Should we have admissions from the community? So avoid some areas where you're being forced to give your opinion versus go to the areas where you're being asked to explain, well, why is this not working? How should we evaluate this? What should a new alternative plan look like? Reflecting in a new plan, you might want to say we want to build an evaluation. 
to understand what's going on. Now, what it's done is in our strategies, one of the key bits is writing is sometimes better than the visual communication. Because in a clearly written piece, you can establish your thought in a nice, slow, methodical way. On occasion, we've gone a bit over the top because the strategy is demanded at that point in time. And then often what we're doing is, and interestingly with the media, one of the things they'll want to do is sometimes rewrite some of your bits of your information. And this happened to us about a week ago. And in doing that, you look at the article and you go, that's not my article. And that's not something I would say. And then again, you've got this interesting proposition, haven't you? Yourself wants to be in the media with your article and they're about to publish it. But you've got your other side going, ah, but actually some people might not like that. And it's not what I would have said. This is the point where you have to be clear you walk away. And so we just wrote in and said, this is not our article and we wouldn't want it publishing in this format, end of. And I spoke with Tom, we said, take it back or put it somewhere else in its original format. And that's an important aspect is if it's not what you would want, you have to stand back. But, uh, and particularly early on, you might be so, um, I'm about to be published in the national newspaper. This is amazing. I'll give in. And that's the integrity aspect of mm. what we do. So integrity is the long game where you're not looking for the quick win. You're saying, actually, this is what we want to say. And I'm sticking with what we want to say. And that's the biggest important aspect of what you do. The other thing I think which is interesting in the media is, again, it's relationship building. It doesn't happen overnight that suddenly you're in a position that actually you're going to suddenly be writing in a national newspaper. Some of these people I've known for over a decade who are still talking to us. And one of the things is they may come to us for a bit of advice. And I'm not going to get anything out of it at that moment in time. But apart from I'm going to explain to a national newspaper something about this analysis that you might look at it this way and that way. Do that with people from the BBC, some of the newspapers, all the time talking to them, knowing I'm not going to get anything out of it. However, when I see the article, I go, actually, the public are going to get something out of it. So I'm thinking about the end product. Yeah. And I look at the end product and I've just seen a national piece in the BBC, for which I spoke to somebody about two days ago. And I go, the end product has it. You wouldn't even know I'd spoken to the person. But in the revolving door of the long game, I know at some point there will be a benefit comes back to me. So you've got to understand the people you're going to work with are going to give you it's a win-win strategy in the long run. But you're not going to win on every event. Not everything is going to go your way. Sometimes you'll place an article and they reject it. And you go, that's all right. I'm not going to get upset with you. This is part and parcel of the game. Understand that those are the times when that healthy selfishness you talked about really count. You know, you can put things to one side, park them for a bit yeah. and take your mind off things, go for a bike ride or, you know, whatever you were talk mentioning about, you know, take your mind off these things and in a way preserve yourself as well. Yeah, and I've always thought as well within that, that helping. And again, coming back to the, it's coming back to some of the GP thinking as well is, you know, in some ways, when you have to rush and you have to supply and people want, you want your opinion. I often go to people where if you need it that fast, it's actually not going to be of that much value. If you need a response from me that quick, 
and I do this with my DSL students, I say I'm still thinking about the issue because some of the things that people want answers on, I don't have the answers for, and we're trying to understand and think through the issue. And, and, and in doing that, sometimes we're looking and going, we can't supply this answer until it's two weeks down the line. That's when I'll come back with the media. That's when we'll start talking about it. And in between, there's a lot of people who've made mistakes and the same things that they'll regret because in about two weeks, we'll have a much better understanding about the data and we'll be able to say much clearer, this is what's just happened as opposed to what I think is going to happen. But I'd say I probably communicate with about 10 to 12 media people now in a regular way. The other thing that's important is um, when you get asked to do something, always think about 100% commitment or not. So if I get asked to write an article for, and this happened this weekend at three o'clock on a Friday, can you write an article for the Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph? And the first question to go is, what's the deadline? 12 o'clock tomorrow. So, and then the second question is how many words? 800 words. Okay. So you basically got, it's three o'clock on a Friday. You're probably winding down for the weekend. You've probably got one or two more things to do. And you're thinking, right, I've got between now and 12 o'clock Saturday. If you're going to say yes, you have to deliver. Never say yes unless you're certain you can deliver. And that's a huge problem because you don't want to get a reputation of saying you'll do something. And at 12 o'clock tomorrow, the paper's going, we've got a void of 800 words. They won't come back to you. So at that point, you're better saying no. But the second issue is that if you would have said to me, going back 10 years ago, the Telegraph or a newspaper had come to you and said, by tomorrow and it's Friday evening and you've got, you're making dinner tonight, you're going to do this article, I'd have probably said, that is impossible. So what you're doing is honing your skills all the time to the point when you get asked to do something of high value, you're ready. And you don't have to go, oh, I haven't got the skills. There's no way I could do this. The third issue is, is the agent of perfectionism in a lot of people. And perfectionism kills creativity. And I think that's something we all have to be aware of because there comes a point when you've got to let it go. And when you put it out there, you also have to accept people are going to take it and use it in their own narrative. And they'll see it in different ways sometimes to what you perceive. And, and I think that's interesting, particularly in some aspects like the media and the TV and the radio. I tend not to watch myself but what I do do is seek feedback from the group of people who know me. And that could be just anybody, wide ranging, could be a family member, could be somebody. I say, what did you think? And I'm looking for them to say, hmm, you know, actually. And sometimes I'll get secondhand feedback through somebody who knows somebody who watched it. said, oh, it's great. What about this? And that's helpful for me. But I can't judge myself because it's too painstaking to watch yourself in your own media. So, Carl, that day when you had that invitation from the Telegraph, were you still able to make dinner that evening? Yeah, I made dinner. We wrote the article. It was uh, uh, a really thoughtful article. But what I did is immediately what I do is you have to have a strategy. And, and, and this is interesting. 
when you start out, you would probably start writing. I'm going to write, I'm going to write, and then you get stuck and pause. About 100 words in, you go, I've no idea what I'm going to write. Whereas now what we do is we set out the structure. Okay, what are the eight points I want to make? What are the points in, within this article? Bang, bang, bang. I'm going to get on the phone immediately to my colleague, Tom Gesson. I'm going to discuss it through, and he's going to go, oh, well, let's make that point, that point. I'm then going to scratch it out and put the words in very quickly. Go and make dinner. Come back in the evening at about 9.30 at night and start to polish it. Come again the next morning. Then have a discussion with Tom. And then what we do at 11.30 is we sit on a Google Doc together. He's in Italy. I'm here. And we go through it line by line. And finalise it. And then when we've done that, we go and have a cup of tea. And we come back again. And we have another 10 minutes just to finalise it again. So what you've done is you've, you've created so many points where you've come back to it. You get to a point where you go, you're clean, but what it's allowing you to do is to do something, have a break, do something where you deflect yourself, take your mind away, even go for a bike ride, come back, do another half an hour. And that strategy works really well. Whereas what you tend to do is if you think, I'm going to sit down and write from beginning to end, and then it will be done. Mm. So this approach where you visit it many times and in between give yourself breaks is important. It's a bit like the tortoise analogy again, isn't it, Carl? Yeah, but interestingly as well, the tortoise is important because this is important within careers as well and where you are in your life cycle. So what I'm describing is something easier to do now than what it was 10 years ago when I had young kids. And nobody will, forg will, will forgive you if, for instance, in your family, when you've got young children, you spent all your time working. And I think um, this is the... Uh, the Covey book, which I really like, is there's some aspect in that book, which is one of the books, you know, you think about some of the, the text you've wrote that have been helpful in your thinking. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective uh, People is a really good strategy to look at. I, I read that book. You don't have to read it all, but there are some things in that book, book that are really helpful. And what he says, is it's really easy to be effective in one area of your life. But you can be really good at your job. You work all the time and you come home and your families fall into bits or your health fall into bits. So you've still got to be mindful in the long game strategy that you've still got to go and make dinner. You can't go in and say, sorry, I'm not making dinner tonight because I've got to write a really important piece by 12. No, you've got to be able to shift and go, when I go into that position, I'm going to let that go behind. So I'll be making dinner, cooking away, having a chat, and the, but the family have a go at me because suddenly my mind might be, I'm relaxed and I'm thinking, oh, I know how to write that better. Nobody knows. And I'm really happy and I'm going, oh, I'm just, and that's what I'm doing. So that's a really important attribute of the different bits of your life. And in certain stages, you have to slow things down because you say, if I speed that up here, what's going to happen is my family life's going to become more ineffective. And that's where the, the tortoise, the long-term plans coming into place, you go, it's okay, because I can see in three to five years, that's where I'm going to be, and the kids will be at secondary school, they'll meet, need me a bit less, but right now they need me to take me to school, and that's having that ability to think long-term. The other thing within that, within the COVID is, is there's, a, there's that structure, which is the two-by-two books, which is there are important things in life, and there are not important things. And then there are urgent and not urgent. And if you put them in a box, you can see you've got important, 
urgent, important, not urgent. And then you've got over here, you've got, you've got, sorry, you've got, I've got that slightly wrong as I'm, I'm talking it through. You've got the important stuff here, haven't you? And you've got important, urgent things and important, not urgent things. Mm. And down here, you've got not important, urgent and, and not important, not urgent. And so what you should do in the box is we often spend our lives in the important stuff and the urgent stuff, don't we? You know, actually today I've got an important teaching session. It's urgent. I'm doing it. But often we spend a lot of our time in the urgent, not important things. Mm. So you sat down having dinner and your phone go. So you go and answer the phone. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not important, but it was urgent. So you did it. And I think sometimes that's where we go wrong. And one of the key things I thought about a lot in life is, is, is being effective. You have to think about the important issues that are not urgent. And that's where we spend most of our lives as children. We go and do stuff that's really important to us and they're not urgent. And anybody with a, who's a parent will know this. You're trying to get your kid out ready for school and they're like, no, no, I'm playing. I want to be doing this. What's the problem, dad? I don't want to come to school. I want to be doing this. And as we go into adult, we find ourselves doing much more stuff that's just urgent all the time. And lots of it is not important. And therefore, what you have to do in your balance is try and say, within my day, what are the important stuff in my box that's not urgent? And I, and, and, and I don't achieve this all the time, but I'll often have in my mind things like, oh, actually, it's really important I speak to Kamal actually today because actually I need, to, I need to email him because he mentioned something really important on Monday that I'm, I need to speak to him. And I'm like, I forgot to email him. I'll tell you what, I'm going to do it by phone because it's more efficient for me and I can have a personal conversation. I'm going to do it that way. It's important, not urgent. And what's interesting is, they're the things that should be the, at least by the end of the week, you've gone, I've ticked that box. Now you can take that to a whole process in your family life, can't you? It's important on a Friday that we watch the movie when the kids were young. Actually, that's what happened. That was the most important thing that was not urgent on a Friday evening. Didn't matter what work did, doesn't matter if the BBC come on, that's fine, gone. So I think that thinking is really helpful to your whole balance and perspective. And the things that really bug me are the stuff where I go, it's important, but it's not urgent. And that might be, for instance, it's really important. I do my 30 minutes of exercise today. It's now four o'clock in the evening. I've still got three hours of work to do today. I'm feeling a bit stressed, but actually, do you know what? For the next hour, we're going to take it out, do it, make it happen, come back refreshed. We've covered so much, Carl, and it's such a nice thing to, to finish on a, on a topic where we're talking about family and the importance to, of balance in your life. And, and as you get busier and more experienced and, and more responsibility that you carry, not to lose sight of that balance. I just want to finish then, if I may, because it's been incredibly insightful. You know, people listening to, to your story and, you know, the experiences that you've shared um, who are much earlier on in their, in their leadership journey in healthcare, what top tips then would you summarise to, for them to take away from what we've discussed today? Yeah, and I think there's been a number of points, haven't there? I think the number one is, is always think about your own skills and building your own skill base. As soon as you stop doing that, the people around you, and particularly the students, will see through you really rapidly and move on to somebody who's hungry for knowledge and learning. And I think that's incredibly important in academia. 
what goes hand in hand with that is learning to communicate. Mm. And you can do that in many different ways. You can do it through writing, you can do it through teaching, you can do it through small groups. But you're always thinking about within this interaction, what are we trying to achieve that's the best for this person? And what goes with that is your own emotional intelligence. How does it make me feel at the end of the day? How does it make this person feel? And then going back to probably my final is, at the end of the day, is if you have a win-win strategy in your mind all the time, whatever comes on your on your shoulder telling you it's time for a win-lose, you go, hold on a minute, what does this other person get out of this engagement right now? And if you're not going to get anything, you need to go back to the drawing board and go, right, you need to rethink it. Because if they're not going to get a win, they're not going to work with you over the long term. And that's going to be a marker of success in my mind. Look to work with the people who have built relationships over the long term and have outputs to match the quality of what they're doing. Fantastic. Carl, thank you so much for giving up your time today. We really enjoyed the insights, hearing the stories, sharing your experiences as well. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who will be watching this with lots to, to gain from what you've told us. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care, Kamal. We hope you enjoyed part two of our podcast, The Fundamentals of Leadership. You can find the full video recording of this interview on our YouTube channel and also on our website, along with many other leadership resources. Simply visit cebm.ox.ac.uk or search CEBM Leadership Resources.